Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Novogratz, and this is Next with Nova. I got Wallow267. I literally just met the guy about 15 minutes ago, uh, though I saw his video this weekend that he shot seven days after he got out of jail, after spending 20 years in goddamn jail. And it was an inspirational freaking video. It was high energy. And he said, you know what? He's going to turn $1,000 into $10,000, into $100,000, into a million, into $10 million, into $100 million. He's going to make generational wealth. And goddamn four years later, he's well on his way. So Wallow, love the fact that we get, were able to get together this quick. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate you, you know, for bringing me into your world, you know? Yeah, and then listen, I apologize. I usually do a little bit of homework, but since this came up in two days, I figured it might be more fun just to kind of interview you here, kind of fresh out the fresh off the blocks with me not knowing your story uh, other than what my buddy Mel told me, which is a pretty fantastic story. And so uh, we do a lot of criminal justice stuff uh, at mm -hmm. Galaxy Gives. Uh, we do a lot of investing at Galaxy and you're kind of a perfect cross between the two, right? Mm -hmm. You spent 20 goddamn years in prison. You were telling me, uh, tell us a little bit about your story. You grew up where? I grew up in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, by the time I was like nine, I started, I started messing around in the street culture because and where I come from, the ghetto, is like attention is God. And I needed to get, you know, I wanted that. And, and you get attention by the jewelry, the cars, the clothes. That's, you know, so I wanted that. And I said, okay, the way I get this, I got to rob and steal. I got to figure some things out, sell some do. I got to figure out a way. And I just start getting into it. By the time I was, I just turned 11. I was a couple days, I'm turning 11, June 30th, 1990. I just turned 11 years old. I got arrested for robbery. And then the next week, I got arrested again. September 1990, I got sent away for a year to St. Michael's School for Boys in Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania. I went there, did a year, came home, got arrested again, got sentenced to another year. They sent me back to St. Mike's again. And it just kept going on. Vision Quest, uh, uh, U Study Center. I just always on, I was a habitual offender. I was in the habitual offenders unit of the probation of the juvenile. And I wound up spending five years in and out the juvenile system. Uh, about time, you know, because I was just married to the streets of Philadelphia because I was trying to, I was trying to get some money, and but what I didn't never realize is that the juvenile system was preparing me for the penitentiary, because by the time I got to the penitentiary, it was like a reunion and everybody that was in the juvenile system for you, it was like a prep, because it was like when you think about it, it was like, it was no true. It was no true education in the juvenile system. It was just like, oh, you here? Here goes some games. Uh, you could do. It was like no. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask. Was there anything in that system that says how can we take this guy that's lived this life of trauma, right? You know, there's been trauma in your background. How can we help him go through this trauma and get prepared to go back to school? To to. to no, that's not the case. It's like you know these these facilities begin government money, and it's like okay, they get government money, and it's like. They just like, oh, we gonna put these programs in here, like not programs of like, you got sports, you got all the sports, all that bullshit, board games, all that stuff. And it's like, nobody is asking the question of, why did you think it was okay to do what you done? What did you see that invoked them thoughts in you to do what you done? How was this, what was this kid around? Them questions never asked, nobody never asked me them. I, I understand them when I got older, but nobody never asked me, why did I think it was okay to rob somebody? Or why did I think, you know, or where did I learn that from? What environments did I grow up in? What did I see growing up in the inner cities of America or in my house or wherever to throw me off? 
and to sway to this in an average human being don't go that way. A lot of them questions never asked. It's just like we just here to get this money. We not it's not we not worrying about we you're you're a body here, so we gonna we gonna get this money. Staff members are put in place. Sometimes you got staff members in these institutions that's not qualified to even pry or you know talk to a child to try to retrieve the information from them about their journey and they struggle. You know, it'd just be like, you just be there. So you went right from juvie, uh, juvenile system, right into the yeah, I had, state you know, system. Got locked up for two armed robberies, two firearm violations. And, you know, and what they did is they certified me as adult at 17. They said, no, no, we tired. You got the jack. You fit the criteria to be sentenced as an adult because of your actions and the crime that you did. We know you're not an adult. You're still 17, but we don't feel as though that you will get it right in the juvenile system because you never got it right. Even though I was in the juvenile system and it wasn't that I didn't get it right. Nobody so they never, got it right. Nobody, right. nobody <laughs> never tried to get me right or come to me or try to, it was never no, so it was like, it was just like, all right, cool. So they say, you know, you're a adult now. We're going to, we're going to sentence you as an adult. We, you know me. So they gave me 60, 25 years and they gave me 13 out of 27 ran bow-legged, so that's 19 and a half to 52 years. So it's like- 19 and a half for 52 years for armed robbery. Yeah, for two armed robberies. I ain't shoot nobody. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't shoot nobody. I didn't touch nobody. But I keep in consideration that if you get a firearm poured out on you, that's traumatizing. Yep. So I never, I take responsibility because I did my crimes. It's not that I was innocent or none of that. I did my crimes and I was in full acceptance of it. But what I, fought, what I, found, uh, what I found a little deep was that when I went to jail and I think about when I was- when I first went to prison and I knew I was going to prison, I was scared to death. Because even though I know a lot of dudes, you still be scared because I'm thinking of the movies and how they educate us that I'm going to get raped, big bubbly. So you just be scared, you be paranoid, and then I'm a kid still. Now I want to, I'm like, oh, I'm a kid, I'm going into the penitentiary. So for a while, they had me on the unit until I turned 18 with other kids that was from all over the state of Pennsylvania that was certified as an adult too. Some was doing life, some was doing 50 years, whatever. So now I get in here. And what, and what, outside of the scariness and fear there, it went away quick, but it was like, from being in a juvenile system, I was programmed to where as though, I was numb to the fact that I had to do all this time. I was just like, I'm just doing time. I'm just in here. Because uh, I was already programmed to be inside of institutions already, so it was like, this is normal. Commissary, uh, a, a child hall, a door closing on you, getting mail, like all that stuff, the, the yard, to, you know, I was just used to institutional places to where it was just like, this is a part of my life. It ain't, it's cool. You know, you never think that like something wrong with that. So, <laughs> so when I went there, I didn't really understand it, that it happened until I was later on in my time in prison. I had to go insane in order to stay sane because I had to convince myself in prison that when I see somebody get stabbed 17 times in the yard, and I'm walking by, and somebody stabbing somebody, I had to convince myself that that was normal activity. That was just a part of this life. That's, and this guy that's getting stabbed, he must have did something wrong, so he deserved it. So I had to normalize madness. Because if I didn't normalize madness, and I was going through my time with a sane mind, I'd have went the fuck crazy. But I didn't even know that this was going on. But to, and then it was time when I was leaving, and I realized I had to deprogram myself in order to reprogram myself for society. So I had to like, I had to get all that stuff like out of my system and the way I seen things, just having conversations like, yo, that wasn't, that wasn't cool. That wasn't like, 
I had to realize a lot of shit because if not, you just going to be numb and you're going to be in this world. So now I'm sitting back thinking about the other guys that come home from prison and why they can't comprehend out here and they can't connect with the world because it's like, I've been in the system. And most of the guys that I know that's in prison, they've been in the system their whole life. Very few that you find people that 40 years old just magically went to prison. Yeah, right. One thing that I understood is that in America, the justice system is the biggest business, one of the biggest businesses that we have. Police, lawyers, judges, correctional officers. You know, oh yeah, the, got, bu- the bus he, driver that takes uh, you from listen, the, the place to the listen, place, right? And when you take inner city people, every state, the most crime come out of the inner city where you put all these people together in this small little place and tell them figure it out. That's where all the crime come from. But the people that profit the most off the crime is small town America, and this is how it happened, Philadelphia. The most people in prison come out of Philadelphia County. But when they say, okay, today we're going to build the prison. The prison that they build, they build in this prison in the middle of Pennsylvania, the Dallas, the Coke Townships, the Somersets. And when we build this prison in this land, we're going to go get with a farmer. We're going to rent his land from him. And we're going to bring these, drop and put it like Legos, put this prison together. Then come a gas station, then come the Walmart. And they built whole towns. Yep. I seen, listen, you gotta understand, I seen guards come in the prison system as rookies. And I seen guards go from being a rookie coming into prison, going all the way up to sergeant, lieutenant, captain, security captain, major, I mean, deputy superintendent, to the warden. I've been in jail so long. You know, you see these dudes coming, and then you see them coming. Whole career, yeah. Listen, and then you see their son come in, go up the link. But, but in my situation, I'm a person that's a part of generational incarceration. I was a uh, Dallas, Pennsylvania. In the 80s, I used to go see my stepfather there, me and my brother, my older brother and my little brother. And we used to go see our stepfather there. And in 1998, me and my stepfather were cellmates in the prison. I used to go see him as a kid. And in 2015, me and my brother were cellmates in that prison. That we used to go see him. So it's a generational thing. And what's crazy is that you'll, you know, you'll see, you'll see a captain and you'll see a sergeant, son and father. So it's like you see the nepotism that goes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's on both sides. It's shocking how much of a family business L- listen, the prison guard system is. It, the prison guard system is a big family business because it'll be like in prison, it'll be like <laughs> like like you could just you could just you could just Tap into a whole family leaving your cell, going to the chow hall. You go, you, your door hit chow time. The guard right there, okay. There's one guard, there's one uh, ski. Then when you walk out of the, going down the hallway, the guard is in the hallway, that's his cousin or his brother. Then you go right there, medical, is the aunt there or the sister there. Everywhere, and then you go in the kitchen, the store this is, it's a big family thing going on. And then on the other side of the game, you see the brothers, cousins, as prisoners. When did you decide, so you're in prison, you're fucking 20 years, which must, when you're 17 years old, must feel like 5,000 years, right? Yeah. When did you decide, fuck this, I don't want to be part of the system anymore. I'm going to get out. I'm going to change my life. I like woke up one day, it was hot as shit in there and uh, the walls were sweating. And I realized that I was living a lie and that uh, 
I was being somebody that I wasn't. Because even when I was in the street game, I always had this consciousness that when we did something wrong, I was always questioning it. I'd be like, damn, why the fuck we do that? Damn, we ain't had to do that for it. I was always had it. So it was something in me. But my environment and my reaction and my approach was environmental. And when I say environmental, it was just like this. It was like, this is what everybody else is doing. Let me do this. The people that I seen doing the crazy shit, it was they it was like it was it wasn't it wasn't that. I try to say because I used to say it was outnumbered. They wasn't. In the inner cities of America, there's more everyday law abiding black people and brown people that's doing stuff the right way. Taxpayers, all that. But due to the media and the, and the overreporting of black and brown crime, it'll have you thinking that everybody's a monster. So this is what you're seeing. And this is what's grabbing your attention. You can't pay attention to the law-abiding citizens that's going to work every day, and there's a bunch of them, Mike. But you don't see them as much as you, because your attention is to the street culture. So you're just seeing all this wrong, and you're thinking, so it's like, this is more advertised, this is more marketed, so you're saying, this is the way I gotta go. So, but now when I'm in prison and I realize, oh, I always hit this concept, and I wake up sweating in the cell, and I'm like, yo, man, there's more to life than this shit. And I said, you know what? I figured out that I was in jail for living a lie. And when I'm saying living a lie, I stepped outside of myself because I wasn't embracing my individualism. And I wanted to be down with the idea and the concept of false success and acceptance was everything. If you look in this world now just for all social media, and you could think about it, you could measure it from now to back then before we had social media and when poverty was real in American inner cities. Look at it now. You got adults chasing acceptance on social media, man. Yeah, it's shocking. Adults. Give me more likes, please. <laughs> so imagine if you're a fucking kid. It's not even about money. Yeah. It's not even about financing. You know, making sure your family is, you know, have financial freedom. It's about just so, so back then, that's all you, that was like people knowing you, you having certain clothes on, you having jewelry on, that's what it was about, Like, So it was just different, you know? So it was like, I, I woke up in that cell and I said, man, I'm done with this shit. Was there, was there meditation? Was there just, it just, you know, no, did, you, get did tired. you go through a process? You just said, fuck it. I'm tired of this. Mike, you get tired, man. Like me, I got tired, you know, and I wanted more and I wanted to, and I wanted life. And, and, and I used to watch one of my favorite dudes in the world, man. It's, I always said, I'm gonna get out meeting, but you know, he's not here no more. Rest in peace. Anthony Bourdain was one of my favorite people. Yeah. And some of the things that I'd done when I came home from prison, was based off of that. I used to watch his shows religiously in jail, the parts unknown, no reservation, the layover. This dude was amazing. And what was amazing about him is that, you know, he used to get high, came back, got it together. And 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 he and he introduced people to new thoughts, new ideas, new cultures. And that was everything to me. I was like, this fucking guy's amazing. So when I came home from prison, I was like, man, I'm getting on that time. But it wasn't like I used to just read books. I read everything I could read. Like, like I say, I wasn't in jail, I was in Yale. I wasn't in prison, I was in Princeton. I wasn't in state Penn. I was in Penn State. See, I wasn't a dude to just sit around and chill. I was, I was the guy that was around there. I was reading, I was thinking. So you got out at 37. When were you ready to get out? And I don't say that facetiously. Like, like you've had these realizations. You're like, fuck it. I'm ready to change my life. I'm ready to kind of go. Was that 32? Was it 27? Was it 36? No, no. I never was ready to get out. I mean, the reason I say that is because the most scariest, the most scariest day of my prison sentences was was the day that I got out. And the reason it was scary because it was like, 
no matter what I told my grandmother, no matter what I told my family, no matter what I told my counselor, no matter what I told the parole board about how I changed and how I was this, that, and the third, I didn't come up against anything to say I changed yet. I haven't been challenged. So I'm scared to death because I know what I want to do. I believe in it, but I'm like, yo, how am I going to react when life come? And when I say life come, I'm talking about not having things, trying to figure it out. You know, not, but I was a dude that didn't have a lot of things. I didn't, I didn't have to worry about, I never used drugs. I never drank in my life. Never smoked a cigarette in my life. So I didn't have to worry about you that. Never, shit. never smoked a cigarette. I never, never did smoked, drugs. Never, never. Drank. Most of my homies did it. And I was a dude that used to get people home and make sure they was cool. That's uh, crazy. I didn't have no kids. So it was a lot of things that I didn't have on me that I had to worry about. So it was like, all right, cool. So I'm coming home and I'm scared to fucking death because I'm like, I told all these people that I'm going to be, that I'm this, this person that I'm telling who I am. And it's like, yeah, the marketing is good to that person. The letters you write, the conversation is right, but you're not going to find out that you're that person until you run up against adversity and you run up into real life shit out here. And you know. Who, who'd you have waiting for you when you got out? Who, who, who picked you up at the, at the prison? Uh, my sister from another mother, Latifa. Tifa, T, I call her T Murder, man. This is somebody that is real close to me. She just, matter of fact, she just called me not too long ago. T Murder was like, you know, a sister, man, just came through for me, you know, and uh, always was, you know, there for me. But she picked me up and went to my grandma's house. So you had some infrastructure to. Yeah, to, yeah, I got to, paroled to my grandma. What happened was, my, I, at first, they, 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 the first time they denied my parole because I, I was gonna go to halfway house. They was like, they want you to go somewhere else. And, I, and then, I don't, you know, God bless her. My aunt wound up dying uh, in my grandma's house, uh, my aunt Ruby, and I wound up getting paroled to that room. She died in that room actually. And uh, my grandma got me a little twin size bed, and I, you know, and I was just happy. And I went home to my grandma's house, and I just started, you know, I started the way I started off was I was selling my t-shirts. That's how I started making men's, um, and I had took a slogan. You know, the TV show is always sunny in Philadelphia. Yep. I took it and flipped it and said, it's always money in Philadelphia. And I would sell them shirts. And um, that's how we get, I'm talking about start off with like 20 shirts or whatever and just keep flipping it. And that's how I made my ends meet. So I want to rewind real quick because there was something you said that's just sitting in my my head. So your aunt passed, yeah. which freed up a bedroom at your grandmother's house. If your aunt hadn't passed, what happens to you? I don't know. Because I didn't really, like a lot of people, like this is how it go, Mike. Say I know you, you're a friend or you're a family member. You really love me. You love your cousin Wallow, Mike, but it's like when the parole people come to your house, they come to your house, say, yeah, because uh, they got to do a home, a home check first. So you, cause you'll put on your paper in jail, like I'm going to my cousin Mike crib, he goes information, they'll call you. Yeah, Mike, can we come over and check the crib? Now when they come over and check the crib, you don't know who's coming and people, and this is the stories you know that was told, like, and it'll be like, Parole man might be coming. You know, we come in your house anytime we want to. You can't have no guns in here. You can't. And you're like, hold the fuck up. I'm not yeah. in jail. Yeah, right. So you be like, well, no, he can't come here. So they let you know we come here anytime we want. Boom, 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 boom. What room he gonna be staying in? Let us see the room. Boom, boom, boom. And you like, I'm, I ain't got time to be dealing with this shit. Listen, I love you, Wallow, because you can't come here. So you had people that try to get home plans, man, and they be trying to get out for, for a while. Because some halfway houses don't accept them or might don't. It depends. Some halfway houses might be full. So it's like, you made it, you did anything you need to get. Some people can't come home. And a lot of people come out of jail and they don't have nobody to come home to. They don't have no support system. Yeah, no. I mean, you got some people do so much time in jail, they come home with everybody dead that they know, you know? So it's like, it's just, it's just, it just, it's, you know, 
It's just hard. Say a little prayer for your anthem. Yeah, Jeez. thank you. Aunt Ruby. And then you got people that's like in the front end, like the whole going to jail. Like I'm a type of dude, I never made bail. Ship is too high. I, who listen, if I'm living in the inner city and I'm here, you know, I'm here for trying to rob somebody for a couple dollars or something, whatever I'm doing, how the fuck I gotta, you know, a hundred thousand to pay for bail? Where the fuck I'm gonna yes. get that from? It's <laughs> like who I'm like, you know, so you'll be sitting in jail for two years waiting to go to trial like this. And then they'd drop it. They'd be like, oh, yeah, we're dropping. You drop it to thirty or 20000 Who got that? Like, who got that money to just give to somebody? Yeah, that's how I got involved originally. I heard this story of unaffordable cash bail, and I was like, that can't be true. And then you look into it, and you're like, I can't believe it's fucking true. Uh, and so we set up this thing called the Bail Fund. Uh, we've now bailed out 15,000 people around, I don't know, 26 what, what, locations. What, 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 what? What what inspired you? Who who who? How did you get into it, man? How you know this you woman named that? Robin Steinberg, uh, who had set up a, a bail fund in the Bronx and had proven that, you know, it's not a ability of you know you originally put on bail so we need people to come to come back to trial. Well, they paid the bail for people, and ninety six percent of the people came back to trial. And so the argument that we got to put these high bails on so that people come back to trial was bullshit. You at risk. You're a flight risk. If I'm a person that's doing crime. And I never in my life left the Bronx. Where is I'm flying to? I ain't got no jet. I can't get it wrong. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. Fuck is I'm a flight risk too. And so the New York, you know, chapter proved it. And we like, well, let's scale this. And I had luckily made a bunch of money in the cryptocurrency world. Uh, I heard her story and I was like, she was such a compelling sales lady. I'm like, I'm in. And I pledged a whole bunch of money. And then we raised a bunch of money. And uh, now it's a over a hundred million dollar organization. Uh, we've got great we hardly hire formerly incarcerated people to be bail disruptors yeah, to show yeah. up at the at the you know the at the police stations and the and the jails and make the story to the guy like dude you better come back because this money gets recycled and a lot of it's people need assistance to get back you know you text them you give them transportation a lot of people miss Mr. Trial Day because they don't have transportation yeah a lot of people can't get jobs because they don't got transportation a lot of people ain't right. got the identification you know so that's what's got me started in the whole criminal justice thing. And, you know, as I peel back the onion, you just get more and more pissed off. You're like, and quite frankly, most of America doesn't understand it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we went to bail somebody out and, you know, I'm a big person. I want to give the guy a hug and high five the guy and ask him some questions. It's 11 o'clock or maybe it's one o'clock. Like, when's he coming out? They're like, I won't tell you. Like the guy I'm with says, oh, he won't get out till 10 at night. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? How hard is it to go get the guy? Processing. So I'm asking like a an aggressive. Oh, processing is a motherfucker. I'm like, what do you mean processing? Go get the guy. Then my guy's getting nervous that we're gonna like you know ruin our whole bail thing. He's like, shut up, shut up, shut up. And I'm like, I don't understand this. So by the time they let the guy out, it's ten at night. They've closed the uh, the window where you get your goods. He's got to walk along you know half a mile. They give him a subway card, go home, and come back the next day to pick up his his valuables. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just freaking wrong how do you start life off like that this year when you walk out of prison that's your new beginning like you're sent to jail as punishment and they say that when you go to jail you're paying back your debt to society you're giving so when you walk out of jail supposed to be brand new but in america if you commit a crime you commit a felony you're doing time for the rest of your life. Oh, I mean, even this this goddamn stimulus bill that the Democrats pushed through that felons actually get 
their $1,400. And the Republicans are going crazy right now and trying to stop that. I'm like, for God's sakes, they're American citizens. They need the money more than anybody. Uh, no, but do you got to understand this? You know, I got, I'm- It's an it's a, it's a ongoing punishment. And the way this shit is designed is like this. You go to Walmart, right? You go to Target. You go to Amazon. Amazon, they get you your shit like this, right? They quick. Uh, targeted good. You know why? They want you to come back. They want the service. Prison is a business. What business you want that don't want the customers to return? It's, it's like, it's a, like you're not in prison. It's not like you're in prison learning code and learning this and learning that. You're learning some shit that's dinosaur. Like, it's dinosaurs in there. Like, you, you turn into a dinosaur because the only thing you know is from when you was... When you got arrested, you coming home and you don't know what the fuck's going on out here. Dudes don't even know how to operate a phone. And it's life, like, what you do? What do you do now? Some people is in jail like, fuck it, I did too much time. I'm going out there, rob me a bank. I ain't got time. I, fuck, I'm, I'm going to start over. My life is over. What I'm doing, I'm going to figure this shit out. I'm going to try to do something. So it's, it's just it's just deep. It's a, it's a deep thing. And it's only a certain people that's getting affected by this shit. You know what I mean? So... Two six seven. Everybody thought that was Philadelphia. Uh -huh. Turns out, that's my that was my prison number. DG two six seven zero. You know, and I got that number back in like ninety seven. And so, Wallow two six seven. You that's just to remind you, like where in the fuck you've been. No, what it do is it remind me where I come from and where I ain't going back to. You know, that two six seven is on my name, so it's like it's just a reminder of that shit. And you're you're on parole till. 2048. That's, that might as well be like the 22nd century. Uh, I'm on parole to after life stop. Yeah. You know, so it's like. So we're going to get you off. We're going to, we're going to work on this. I, you yeah, know. Some things, it was going to happen. You know? Yeah. I'm I, real so optimistic. I've been asking people, again, I started in bail and then I moved to parole and some other things. And I've probably asked 25 people this question who, who are on parole. Give me one good thing that comes out of parole. And you know how many answers I got? Bubka, zero. And so I'm like, okay, if not one person on parole can find one thing good, and these are honest people, uh, I'm like, we got to do away with parole. And so Reform Alliance has a mission to cut parole by a million and then another million. My own radical sense is there should be no parole. We should hire, take that money, right? It's about $3,000 a, a person in New York at least, and flip the switch and say, hey, hire- $3,000 a month? $3,000 per person per year oh, yeah, yeah. that they spend on parole. Uh, take that, either give it to the person coming out of jail uh -huh. or hire life coaches and pay the life coaches. If the guy does well, you get paid more. If the guy stays out of jail, you get paid more, right? Incentivize, instead of parole officers kind of, it feels to me like they're putting marbles in front of people on an ice skating rink and say, oh, he slipped. What the fuck <laughs> do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, instead of how can I help this guy reintegrate, become a taxpayer, become, you know, fully fully uh, a functional citizen who's already been traumatized. We probably didn't help him deal with this trauma in prison. We probably re-traumatized him. And now you expect him to just be fine with no money, no skills. I mean, it's such a fucked up system. It drives me insane. You're if one you, of If you make that happen, that'd be legendary. Well, you got, you got to dream big. You better. If your dream ain't big, if they ain't laughing at your dream, you ain't dreaming. Yeah, no. So let's go down to this video you say. You're, you're one week out of jail. I mean, you know, you're 20 years. Is a, is a beat down that most people can't comprehend. You get out and you've got this charismatic energy. Like, where did that come from? Because when I was in prison, right, 
I had a, we had TVs on your cell. It depends on what I was in the state prison, in Pennsylvania. You had a TV. You go buy a TV or commissary. And my, I had this one celly. And he's like, "Yo, is you all right?" I said, "Why?" He said, "Because you always watching fucking commercials. Like I be watching these commercials, Mike. And when and when the, the show was something, like show Ray come on, I turn to another channel to see commercials, right?" He's like, what the fuck is the matter with you, man? You just check the channel all day watching commercials. I said, no, something about this. I got, I'm got. i trying to figure something out. I said, because every time I went to McDonald's, that burger ain't never fucking looked like that. And then I start, and then I, I used to write shit down. I got a thing called The Book of Life. And in The Book of Life, that was that book that was on there with that money. It was the book there. There's The Book of Life where I used to write notes down. And I used to write it down. He's like, hold up. I watched 15 commercials, and most of them had red in there. What is this about? I write it down, and I started studying marketing. And then I realized that it was a, a it was an advertising firm that did that McDonald's commercial. It wasn't McDonald's. So I start realizing shit. Then I uh, I read a book called Damn Good Advice by George Lois. He's the guy that they did the show Made Mad Men off. And I start understanding that shit more and more. So I said, okay, I said okay, I got this shit. I know what's going on. I know why red is important. I know why this is important. I know yellow. Did Eva. I mean, so it was a lot of things I just started learning. So to me, it was like, in America, if you understand advertisement, marketing, you can sell shit to a diary ass on the toilet. <laughs> That's the key of all this shit. It's about, it's about how do you market something? How do you market an idea? How do you give value to it? See, marketing can give value to this air that's in my hand right now. If I could tell Mike, I say, hey, Mike, I need you. What? I need you, to, I need you to get value to this. I need you to talk about this air. And we got to set up something so we can buy this air. How can we do that? If I get the right people to market it, it's a wrap. So now if I got something that you can see. I'm going to bring you out as a Bitcoin salesman. <laughs> no. That's what, listen, obviously. That's what I've been doing. A friend of mine was talking about that. He was like, it's just like invisible. It's some invisible shit, but people with value gave it value. Yeah. I was just with a friend of mine. Value comes from social constructs. Yeah. Value exists because we say it exists. Give us a little bit about the business. So you you came out, you said you're going to make this money. What was your first? I started getting speaking, speaking, speaking engagements. I started doing a bunch of them. Speaking engagements, people giving me for ads. And then one of the biggest things that happened for me was the podcast partnered up with Barstool Sports. And so this is, now you've got a media company or media brand. Is that how you think of things? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just like a walking media company, you know, walking, talking. All you need is this. So all you need is this. With this, uh, you know, a bank account, LLC, tax ID number, you can so do So now it. we're not going to just thank your aunt. We're going to thank Steve Jobs as Steve, well. I always thank Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is, uh, like I, I did a uh, post the other day and I said, uh, I said, it's Revenge of the Nerds right now. Yeah. I said, yeah. And I told him about the movie because a lot of people don't know what that is. So I educated him. I said, right now it's about Revenge of the Nerds. It's not about the cool people. The cool people don't make the world shake. The people, the thinkers, the people that's classified as nerds, they run this shit. Everybody that could think, think is rule the world. And it's about making it happen. And because the nerds created this and everybody got this in their pocket. Everybody. So it's like, you can't live without this. They run anything. You know, uh, Elon Musk, you know, the, the creating this great technology, you know, so when you see it, Jeff Bezos, when you see these guys, and I'm not saying only people that smart as nerds, but that's how it was clarified, the people that think. And so it's like- Jeff, at, I know Jeff Bezos, he was a nerd. Oh, it was cool, okay, but you know. 
You know, when you think of this stuff, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Nerd. I mean, uh, what's my name? Dorsey from t- uh, uh, Twitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like Jack Dorsey. So it's like, you just, you know, you see it. It happened. It just, but it's happening out here. And people is taking their lives back and they getting out here and they fucking living. And that's what I market. Live. Live your fucking life. You know, activate your fucking button. Now, what do you want to do now? So four years out, you got momentum. Like when you think ahead, like what's, what's next? One thing about me, I just like to grow. And uh, I'm going to turn into, you know, I'm a connector. I like to connect people and ideas together. And, uh, and I'm an amplifier. I like to amplify shit. So I'm real creative, but it's not like me. I'm the guy that like to be, you know, even though I do what I do on social, I like to, I like to make the moves behind the scenes and, and really, you know what I mean? I like to feel Jackson shit. Who are your heroes? My grandma. I'm going to tell you this. One thing about her was that she's somebody that, you know, that always seen me doing wrong. And I always seen her doing right. And she used to always tell me, she used to always tell me all the time that, like, you know, one day you won't get it right. I got it right. And, but I used to be scared to death when I was in prison because every time I would talk to her, she'd be like, well, baby, I ain't going to be here by the time you get back because I never told her how much time I was doing. So that used to pay me. And then when I came home and she realized what I was doing, and she was, I was on the paper, front paper, she was just so happy. But it was like that lady right there epitomized struggle. She epitomized dedication, discipline, and uh, I never seen nobody like her. She worked every day, seven days a week, bought her home like a year later in an all-white neighborhood in Philadelphia. She had two kids, man, $5, came from the South. Uh, and she made it happen. She, don't, she, ain't, she never made excuse. I never, I never even, I don't even think I seen my grandma cry probably once when my uncle died. She just was a person that just like, it was no fucking excuses. Like, and that's why I get my like, just like that grind to keep going, you know, to just, to go, you know what I mean? Because she, she don't play no game. She like, she like five heroes to me, you know? Awesome. awesome. All right, best book you read in the last two years or five years? Book that changed your life? I'm going to say one of the best books that I've read uh, is, is a couple. You got Contagious by uh, 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 Jonah, uh, Jonah Berger, and you got that damn good advice by George Lois. Them two major books, you know what I mean? Uh, they were strong. They were, they were some strong books. And it wasn't just about life changing, it was just about they were so informative about what was going on out here. And it just opened my eyes to so much shit. Are you part of the hip hop community? Yeah, I'm part it? of the hip hop community, but my favorite artist is Sampa. He's an artist called Sampa. He's like a singer. This dude is amazing because when I came home, he got an album called Process, and there's a song on there called Plastic. And when I came home from jail, I used to listen to this song all the time. I used to walk the streets of Philadelphia, and he was a part of my journey. And his music was the soundtrack to my my come up and, and just the journey of me coming home, my reentry to society. And I still listen to this shit to the day. It's just this one album, and it's like the best song that he had was Plastic. And when this shit open up, I'm going to go find him some type of way, you know? Awesome. I'm sure you will. I'm going to find him. I'm sure he'll be pumped to hear that, too. Yeah. Right? That's why artists create. Yeah. Well, listen, this has been awesome. You want to ask me anything, or you want to... I mean, I really... Uh, listen, I'm an investor. I've made a whole lot of money just trusting my gut in life. Pulling uh, the trigger. I, it's, but it's intuition. Like, I was one of the first investors in Bitcoin, one of the first investors in psychedelic, you know, mushrooms to use to cure depression. Uh, 
I've invested in movies that have won and I would literally invest in you. You know, if, if I could buy stock in Wallow 267. We'll figure it out. I'll be buying. I will, I will. <laughs> we'll figure it out, but I'm going to ask you a question. What do you want that you don't have? Oh, that's a good question. What do I want that I don't have? Um, I try not to want. You know, I, I, I try to live. I have been blessed with lots of luck. You know, mm -hmm. my I got a horseshoe shaved in the back of my head Damn. from an accident. Uh, my grandmother used to tell me she kissed the Blarney Stone when I was a kid. So I have just been lucky my whole life. Lucky is an intuition. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so I'm trying to live in gratitude, trying to live in, you know, giving back more than I'm taking in. And so I don't want a lot. I got, I got beautiful kids. I got a nice wife. I've got, uh, I got a great company. And so I'm in the given, given phase of life. When I was young, I wanted a lot. I wanted yeah. to be rich. I wanted to. Yeah. You'd be wanting that shit. And, and like, I kind of got it. And once you get it, you want to figure out how to give it back. What they going to say about you when you die? <laughs> he was a wild man. He was crazy motherfucker. That's gonna be his tombstone. Crazy, mother, crazy motherfucker. You know what? Uh, Malcolm Forbes, when he died, Malcolm Forbes was a crazy guy. Yeah. Uh, when he died, his his oh, oh educate me on Malcolm Forbes. Is he? So Malcolm Forbes, Forbes Magazine. Oh damn. Okay. I know. And okay. you know his 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 sons and 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 grandsons are pretty conservative, but he was. I saw him in New York City with his with his you know. You know, chaps. You know the leather pants on his motorcycle. He had great parties, and he lived this. This the boy Forbes magazine. This Forbes magazine. He lived a big life, and Damn, and I it, thought that was so much more, you know, politically correct. Well, it, 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 you know, his his progeny are pretty more conservative. But Malcolm, he, I didn't know him personally, but he went to Princeton. I went to Princeton, so you took a notice in him, and I just saw him around New York City living the big life. And I was what year like, was this? Probably eighty six. He probably died in the early nineties. But on his tombstone, I remember it said, while alive, he lived. Damn, that's strong. And I love that. That's what I want people to say about me, that he went for it, he lived. What university did you wrestle for? Princeton. Was you good? I was good, not great. I was, I was you know, I was the- You was an Olympics, okay. He was, he I was an Eastern British. champ. Uh, oh, that was the aim, back. Yeah, I, I, I was almost an All-American, but being an almost All-American is like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, I took the team to the Olympics in 2012. I was- I was the, the team leader, they call it, but mm -hmm. I, I got an Olympic outfit. I marched in the opening ceremonies. I, I walked in with Kobe, which was one of the great memories of my life. That's legendary. He literally called me over. He said, I'd met him two days before with some of the wrestlers, and he called us over. We're walking in this parade, and he let most of the basketball players go ahead. He said, come here, come here. You want to have fun? I said, walk in with me. So we walk into the London Stadium with Kobe. Every camera on the planet is on. It's on you. So you in all type of footage. And we're waving me and my phone is buzzing in my ass. And when I finally, you know, leave him, I, it's my son saying, dad, stop waving. You're not an athlete. Stop waving. <laughs> but I had the beret on. So no one can tell I didn't, I wasn't an athlete. I was out there. Yeah. He had, I mean, I didn't know Kobe Bryant other than that one moment, but what a gracious, lovely moment. Yeah. And uh, I got the picture. Yeah. Uh, a lot of fun. That's deep, man. Well, awesome. Thank I you, really man. loved it. I enjoyed this. I keep going. You know, I really enjoy it. You ever need anything? You got a, a fan here, an investor? We'll, we'll work something we'll out. We'll figure something out. We can figure we something out. I'm, I'm, I'm in. We're going to do something, Mike. You know what I mean? Something that's going to be humongous because we both adventurous, crazy motherfuckers. You know what I mean? And I think uh, we'll do some shit. Get some traction and we out of here. Do some that evaluation to go to the moon and the next thing you know, we out of here. You know what I mean? Going long, Wallow 267.
the one last piece of advice that I'm gonna leave you with is you die once, but you live every fucking day. So live it like it's your last day on earth. And uh, your dreams is closer than you think. But if you care about opinions, if you care about what they saying, if you value others' thoughts of you more than you value your thoughts of you, you're fucking done, you ain't gonna get a chance, and you're gonna be a fucking loser. So get out there and live your fucking life. I love that. Be well. Be well.